Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I am become death, Giles Goff. And I am destroyer of worlds, Natalie Minica. And today, for this very special episode, we're going to be looking at Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's adaptation of American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Now, this probably won't be the usual type of episode where I find some incredible minutiae and say, well, that's quite interesting because that links back to Job 3 verse 2 or whatever. This is actually really just trying to take some time to actually process the thoughts that came up mm. in this, in that, after seeing that film. Like a lot of people out there, I did the Barbenheimer, or technically I did the Oppenbarb, <laughs> after I'd seen the film. I had about 55 minutes, in which time I had to go back, pick up Claire, <laughs> sort the babysitter, and then go right back in order to see Barbie. So You suffer for your art, don't you, Giles? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, basically, the film critic community, they saw that it was an obvious bit of counter-programming, you know, Barbie versus Oppenheimer. Mm. And obviously, when it's counter-programming, the idea is the people who are going to see Oppenheimer won't be the people who want to see Barbie and vice versa and mm. it's quite frustrating because that posits that you're either a serious thoughtful weighty intellectual or that you just like fun things that are sweet and nice and and make you laugh <laughs> and film twitter and the film community in general just went no no we're gonna see both because <laughs> screw you that's why <laughs> I did hear that um Warner Brothers distributes Barbie mm. and um, Universal distributed Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. And obviously um, Warner Brothers used to do all of Chris Nolan's yes. films. You know, it's all the Dark Knights. So, and basically Nolan had a massive falling out with the Warner Brothers over oh, there. Yeah. At one point they decided they were going to put like everything on their HBO Max streaming system. So they, they oh, he had a big yes. fallout with them over like the release window. So there is some people out there that suggest that Warner Brothers counter-scheduled, counter-programmed Barbie just to mess with him, you know? But uh, <laughs> I don't know how much truth there is to that, but I find it interesting. Anyway, we are not going to be talking about Barbie today. Well, I was just going to ask, is there any plan to do a Barbie episode? Because <laughs> I actually think there's, um, there are, you know, depths to be mined there. Yeah, uh, there's Plato's Cave and mm. there's lots of other stuff in there. The reason why I do this podcast, or the reason why I that, that I have any drive to, to do this sort of thing at all, is because I want to be able to say something I don't think anybody else has thought of yet. And as best I can tell, every possible thought about Barbie has been had and has been <laughs> has been sort of put out there. Uh, my good friend Shahina Udin, she looked at whether uh, Barbie was just about white feminism or intersectional. She argued Ooh. that it was intersectional in the Radio Times. You should sort of check that out. You decided that, out. that Barbie had like a, a Buddhist sort of angle to it. Yeah, Mrs. Fisher, the media superstar, she was like, oh, wow, this is so postmodern. I'm like, yes, postmodernism is my jam. Hmm. I just couldn't see any way of linking it to the Bible. Yeah. And my my thinking is if there's a if there's a white male who doesn't want to make everybody listen to what he has to say, then maybe you guys should embrace that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? 
Coming back to the film we're actually here to talk about. Yes. Nat, how did you feel coming out of Oppenheimer? Uh, enjoy is a hard adjective to use for this film because it's like, yes, it is a wonderful piece of filmmaking, but you don't always feel particularly comfortable while you're watching it because the of the content itself. Um, but I thought it yeah. was brilliant. And I, I really felt like I learned a lot about some historical events that I wasn't even aware of. Like, obviously, I knew yeah. about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and had heard of Oppenheimer, but I didn't really know that much about the Manhattan Project. And I had no idea about Oppenheimer's, like, what, what happened to him afterwards with the hearings. Um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who were being educated about stuff that we probably should have known. Uh, as you know, my dad is, or my dad was, uh, a nuclear engineer. Mm. Um, he was like shift charge at Wilver Power Station for uh, a lot of years. And in an attempt to kind of to have something to talk about with him, I sort of cultivated an interest in, in sort of nuclear power and nuclear energy. Mm. But the problem is my, my brain just isn't very good. <laughs> as soon as there are maths brought into the equation, my brain goes, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go play on the swings. I'll see you later. <laughs> so if I can't handle the science of nuclear fission or mm. anything like that, the closest thing my brain can do is it can look into the history mm. of uh, a thing. So that's why I, I go to on that particular front. I first learned about the name Manhattan Project, I think possibly from you because... Were they through Watchmen? Was... Watchmen, yeah. yeah. Why is he called Dr. Manhattan? And it's like, oh, well, there was the Manhattan Project. Yeah, same, yeah. same. Do you, can I just say, I think you're being slightly harsh on yourself. I consider myself to be quite good at maths and nuclear stuff is just beyond my ability to comprehend so i don't think that's a you mm. thing i think that's just a normal people thing <laughs> <laughs> very good okay all right now without further ado let's get into <gasps> nuts facts nuts facts uh oppenheimer is a 2023 biographical drama film written and directed by christopher nolan and starring <gasps> Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Plew, Josh Hartnett, and I could literally just keep going on. Like, Gary Oldman's in there. Um, he plays... Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Truman. Yeah, thank you. The film chronicles the life of American theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his work on the Manhattan Project, the top-secret development of nuclear weapons during World War II. The movie was released on the 21st of July, 2023, and to date is Nolan's longest movie, running at a bum-numbing three hours. Didn't feel like three hours, it though, did it? absolutely didn't. Um, and this is a fact that, like, Pete keeps getting passed around, and it's come from Nolan himself, that the entire reel of IMAX film stock used for the production is 11 miles long and weighs 600 pounds. So if you go and see it in full mm -hmm. IMAX, you know, they've had to bring it in on the back of a truck. Killian Murphy has appeared in more Nolan films than any other actor except... Uh, Christian Bale? No, Michael Caine. Michael Caine. So, yeah, um, Killian Murphy has appeared in more Nolan films than any other actor except Sir Michael Caine, who appeared in eight. Coincidentally, Oppenheimer is the first Nolan film since 2002's Insomnia that does not feature Michael Caine. So there is no no place for Mr. Michael Caine in Oppenheimer. <laughs> Which is weird because there was a place for literally everybody else. <laughs> yeah, like everyone's in that film. So yeah, I kept watching it going, oh, it's him. 
Oh, it's her. Okay, so another fact. Uh, Matt Damon, who plays Leslie Groves in the movie, was on a break from acting as a promise to his wife with one condition. He would only go back to work if Christopher Nolan called. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Uh, Nolan offered Damon the role in Oppenheimer and Damon, of course, said, uh, yeah. And I think, like, I don't know who um, his wife is, but, like, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? I love that because I, I read that about that fact as well. You know what this is like. There are negotiations <laughs> you have within a marriage, you know, like, well, darling, I really need this camera. Do you really need that camera or do you want that camera? <laughs> I want that camera. Well, then, no, sod off. You know, like the, the I'm going to take a break from acting. OK, you're going to take a break from Yeah, OK. Unless Christopher Nolan calls. Yeah, obviously, unless Christopher Nolan calls. My God. I imagine that the phone call... I imagine he puts down the phone and he says to his wife, that was Chris Nolan. And she just looks at him and goes, well, what the hell are you doing? Stand here. Get out. Go to it, you know? <laughs> Don't leave him waiting. <laughs> I'm just picturing Christopher Nolan. He might Nolan. change his mind. And then he'll give the job to Ben Affleck. Oh, no. Well, his brother was in it. There's another person who was uh, in that film. But no, I just imagine um, Christopher Nolan standing with uh, a boombox outside uh, Matt Damon's house in the rain, playing like a, uh, a song for him, uh, trying to get him to come and join in his film um <laughs> the movie ends with oppenheimer security clearance being revoked after a series of uh, security hearings and i don't you can't hear me but i'm putting up air quotes there because it was essentially it was a kangaroo court wasn't it um however on december 16th 2022 j robert oppenheimer's security clearance was posthumously reinstated by the u.s department of energy almost 70 years oh, wow. after it was first revoked by its predecessor the atomic energy commission in acknowledgement of the mistakes made by that commission i mean better late than never dude was dead at that point but <sighs> i love it when um when you just get some kind of acknowledgement from an mm. official body like yeah we screwed that up because it's not really about oppenheimer at that point it's about this his sort of like grandkids and 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 his mm. his sort of family do you know what i mean Mm. And it's the same sort of thing that the British government did with Alan Turing. Um, he's kind of been rediscovered mm. as a national hero that he always should have been. The This was really interesting. I, I, I feel like I need to watch the film again and pay attention to this. Uh, but the score for the film doesn't include any drums. As Christopher Nolan and composer Ludwig Goranson, I do apologise if I've mispronounced his name there, felt that using a sound typically associated with the military would be inauthentic to musically capture the character of J. Robert Oppenheimer. I found that really interesting because we often think of war films in drums and it is a war film, but at the same time, it's not. So there we go. Those are all my facts. Fantastic. Thank you, Natalie. Now we've got a guest who... He can talk about the Second World War like he was there because, <laughs> well, frankly, I haven't ruled out that he actually was. Mm. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hi, uh, my name is Sim Cloak and I'm a history teacher from Devon uh, with a special interest in the 20th century and military history. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to answer Giles's questions today. Tim, thank you so much for joining us again. You've become like one of our absolute regulars on this podcast. Basically, if anything happened in the past, then we then we bring you in to talk about it. Well, I'm very happy to be a history specialist for you. I just hope that I can do the goods. Okay, so let's get into it. Obviously, a large part of Oppenheimer is devoted to not just making the bomb, but also when the they start thinking about alternatives to dropping it on a civilian mm -hmm. uh, population. What were some of those alternatives and why were they, well, for want of a better phrase, ignored? 
Well, it's, it's a one of those really huge questions of 20th century history, and I don't think there is a simple mm. answer to it. I've not yet seen Oppenheimer. I'm hopefully seeing it on Friday. <laughs> okay. Things take a little bit longer to happen down in Devon. It's just how it is. Um, so I don't know how the film ends, although I reckon I can probably guess uh, at least some of it. But this is actually something that I look at with my students. Um, we do it in a slightly more simplified way. They're about 14 when they're, when they're doing this in class. But it means that I'm pretty familiar with the historiography over the decision that was made and why they came up with it. Really, it boils down to four main options that they had to try and end the war against Japan. Um, in no particular order, those options were the dropping of the atomic bombs, which is, of course, what actually did happen. Uh, a demonstration of the power of those weapons to try and intimidate Japan into uh, surrendering, the invasion of the Japanese home islands, and the other one being conventional bombing. Um, I say actually there's four. There's there's five. Uh, I suppose there's there's um, there's the one that actually did happen and four alternatives. The last one is um, one that I'll probably expand upon the most because I think it's such an ignored one, and that's the the naval blockade of Japan itself, which was another option. Right, so ultimately, yes. Allied commanders led by the USA they had five options, including the dropping of the atomic bombs. Okay. Talk us through some of those those options then. So, was the plan to sort of show them footage from the from the Trinity test on one of those possible t- alternatives, or what? Well, this is the interesting one. I don't think the demonstration theory really got much um, much momentum behind it for a couple of reasons. First of all, mm-hmm. there were not many of these bombs at all, so using yeah. one in a demonstration would deplete the stocks of uh, an incredibly powerful but incredibly expensive weapon, which is a horrible way at look- of looking at it economically. But that was a consideration. Yeah. Um, but there were other problems with it as well. What showing them footage would not be believed. You know, m- much as today we we doubt the things that we see in, in video footage and say it could have been doctored or it could have been. Um, a trick in some way it would have probably had to have been a live demonstration where would you arrange that how would you get the japanese to agree to turn up to it all of that would have been tremendously difficult um, another problem with doing that is would the japanese really have believed that the americans had more of these bombs or whether they would be prepared to use them and i think the third one is what if it didn't work what if they get all that together they press the big red button so to speak and it just doesn't work that's possibly going to be a huge backfire. So the demonstration theory probably wasn't a realistic one. Right, okay. And then obviously there's the, the, the naval blockade, which you were saying is the mm. one that often gets the least least amount of um, press, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Well, the naval blockade is an interesting one because um, in, in this country, so in, in the United Kingdom, we're really familiar with the idea that Nazi Germany tried to starve Britain into surrender using submarines and U-boats. Um, the Battle of the Atlantic, the, the sinking of merchant shipping, massive part of the war. Churchill famously said it was the only thing that scared him in the war, and with good reason, could well have lost Britain the war if, uh, if that hadn't been sorted out. Well, the Americans were doing very much the same thing to the Japanese in World War II, except unlike the Germans, they basically succeeded in doing it. Um, there were other Allied submarines out there, a small number of British and, and Dutch ones as well, but it is a predominantly American effort. To get statistical for for a moment, and then to go on what the the effects of that actually would have been. In 1944, so the last full year of the the war, the Americans primarily sank 2,380,000 tonnes of Japanese ships, which is a huge amount. Um, They didn't sink that much in 1945, but that's more because the Japanese had simply just about run out of ships. So in the entire Pacific War, 
American submarines sank over 2,000 Japanese ships. And by the end of the war in 1945, so in August 1945, Japan was down to about 23% of its pre-war merchant shipping fleet. So over 75% of all of their merchant shipping fleet had been sent to the bottom of the Pacific. And Japan was in a similar position to Britain in terms of being an island nation with a similar sized population, about 31 million or so. Um, And the prospect of them having to rely on imports and those imports being completely severed was an absolutely catastrophic one. So the naval blockade is one that likely would have forced the Japanese into surrender within about a year of it happening. Um, I say that with a certain provisos because that's assuming that the Japanese high command would have um, taken the the suffering and starvation of the civilians as being a pretext for surrender when of course it was completely contra- contrary to their um, their way of fighting and their beliefs um, but it seems hard to believe that even Japan could have fought on for much more than about a year with a naval blockade like that. Mm. Also a naval blockade and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm wrong here but I mean like mm. naval blockade is it's still quite like a large, significant target it for, for mm. the Japanese. Even the Americans aren't necessarily able to do it completely safely for that period of time, are they? Um, no, I mean, submarine warfare was always one of the most dangerous parts of warfare at that time. But you've got to understand that a little bit like um, it's kind of the opposite, opposite situation to what happened in the Atlantic, where uh, German submarines became very much the hunted by the end of the war. The Japanese shipping losses and their naval losses also to things like air attack were so hugely severe that their ability to counter American submarines and aircraft was by 1945 falling apart as well. There's a reason why by the Battle of Okinawa you've got um, a significant proportion of the Japanese attempt to strike back at surface fleets being um, suicide attacks by kamikazes because trained pilots, um, good quality aircraft with a good survivability rate were by that point very few and far between, sadly. It's interesting you brought something up there about um, about Okinawa, and I think, mm. if I'm right, I think you told me when we first talked about this last week that Okinawa was was almost seen as like an example of what a Japanese invasion might be like. It might mm. be one was one of the most compelling reasons for dropping the bomb because it'd be quite bloodthirsty. Yeah. Could you expand on 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 the Battle of Okinawa? Yeah, sure. Um, Okinawa is uh, a frankly horrific battle, e- even by the standards of World War II. It's it's really quite a chilling one. You've got military forces, you've got civilian forces. Well, the suffering of civilian for- um, civ- civilian um, militia, for example, uh, on Okinawa mm-hmm. was, was really significant. Um, the line between who was a civilian non-combatant and who was a, a mobilised Japanese soldier were increasingly blurred by this fight, and, and that was encouraged by... Um, the Imperial Japanese command as well. I mean, if you try and looked at the strength of Japanese forces in Okinawa before the battle, you're looking at around about 70,000 um, military personnel and about 30,000 mobilised civilians, with the result that it becomes pretty much a battle of annihilation. So a lot of the extrapolation of what might have happened with uh, an invasion of Japan itself, and, and we've always got to stress this is counterfactual, it never actually happened, so we can only estimate um, is if it had followed a similar sort of um, loss pattern as the Battle of Okinawa, we are talking something that would have been truly catastrophic, probably the worst battle of the whole of the Second World War. Um, statistics, as I think I've said to you before, are really reductive, aren't they? But we're looking at around 110 to 120,000 Japanese uh, people killed in the Battle of Okinawa um, out of a mobilised population of maybe 130,000. 
I think that is virtually, you know, everyone who was mobilised was killed in some way. You had um, suicides of civilians who felt that they wouldn't want to be occupied by the Americans. So whereas you've got uh, the Japanese defensive forces and, and many of their civilians virtually wiped out in the fighting, You've got figures for the Allied side, which are only about 10% of that. So about 12,500 Allied killed, most of them Americans, and about 50,000 total casualties, which, while catastrophic, are are much smaller compared to the Japanese losses. And um, But even if we take that into account, then extrapolate it onto an invasion of the Japanese home islands itself, we're looking at something that's far more big i know one of the topics about world war ii that you know a little bit about because of family connections for example is the d-day landings uh yeah no i um my uh, my grandfather he was a normandy veteran he wasn't at d-day but uh mm. but he was he was there uh, when i had grown up as a kid when you hear that he's he was at normandy but he wasn't there at d-day you're like mm. oh well okay well it was probably quite nice and safe by that point and i'm like no no absolutely not that was not the case in the slightest you know so mm. yeah as you appreciate, you know, it's it's nothing of the sort, is it? I mean, it's it's for months and months after D-Day itself, the fighting continues to secure mm. the bridgehead. Um, D-Day is the biggest amphibious operation in history. Uh, it's the sort of thing that couldn't take place today um, because of the other part of our, our chat, which is going to be nuclear weapons. It just wouldn't be possible with, with modern weapons technology. But um, we're talking about an invasion of the Japanese home islands that would have probably included about 6 million Allied service personnel including my own grandfather he was out in burma you know i've got sort of a bit of a vested interest with my interpretations of this because i know that very likely my granddad would have fought in the invasion of japan and maybe wouldn't have survived it he'd already had an absolutely terrifically awful war and it would have only got worse then on the other side of that when you're looking at the stakes for japan and i've taken my figures today from a book by um Oh, Frank, which was written in 1999, but based upon um, intelligence estimates from the time. They're looking at Japan having 4.3 million soldiers, so fewer than the Allied forces. But how many of their civilians would they have mobilised as well? We do know that Japanese schools, for example, were instructing schoolchildren on how to stab American soldiers with carpentry tools, for example. So we are talking about a truly apocalyptic event if it happened. But it didn't. So so uh, there's only so much we can talk about in terms of how awful it would have been, because frankly, we just don't know. But the, the projections were looking very, very bad. So coming back to actually dropping the bomb, um, mm. you we're going to later on in the episode, uh, we're going to be sort of looking at the, the ethical questions of that. And I, by the sounds of it, this mm. is the sort of thing you tackle with young minds every single year. So do, how yeah. do you how do you approach this question and what are some of the common conclusions that some of your students come to with it? I think it's worth pointing out as well that it, it's all very well for us here in 2023 to be looking back on these events. But something else that they wouldn't have had in 1945 is our moral qualms and taboo over the use of nuclear weapons they'd never been used before their effects were only partially understood um you know for example um radioactive fallout the effects of radiation were beginning to be understood but it wouldn't really be known until they were very tragically of course used in action um and the other thing that's that's rather uncomfortable to think of is that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both cities filled with civilians both cities were absolutely devastated by these bombs but they were not the first cities devastated by bombing in the Second World War. 
Um, the firebombing of Tokyo killed a similar number of people. The difference being that this was not just one plane and one bomb per city. We're talking, you know, maybe 40 raids using hundreds of B-29s, um, dropping firebombs over a course of weeks and months. But the result very much the they same. Did, they, they did like a, a letter bombing campaign after Hiroshima, didn't they? They they dropped they letters over, over cities telling telling people to flee the cities and to mm. implore their, their leaders to surrender. And I think there was something like, we have this new bomb, which is the equivalent of 20,000 of our B-29s or something mm. like that. I think there's a, a certain amount of that, but there's a little bit, from the reading I've done, I think it's a bit of a myth to say that the Japanese were being warned about this new weapon. Curtis LeMay, who was in charge of US Air Forces over Japan at that time, those letter campaigns did happen, but I've not found really good evidence that they specifically mentioned the use of these new bombs or whether it would have been believed right. even if they had been. And it was much more about, um, dare I say to use a, a kind of a, 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 a biblical metaphor, metaphor a, a fig leaf for the American bombing saying we're trying yeah. to be humane when actually it was it was just a tiny cover for what they were probably going to do anyway. Um, I think that there is possibly an argument to say that the very worst outcome that could have happened for all, for Japan at the end of World War II would have been the naval blockade. Um, because the American planning over that was planning for the contingency of causing literally millions of civilian deaths through starvation. And that would have been the only way to force the Japanese leadership to any sort of negotiating table. Because even after the dropping of that first bomb, the leadership was still split over whether to surrender or not. And it took the emperor himself to break the deadlock. And even the Americans gave a tiny, well, I say the Americans, the Allies gave a tiny bit of wriggle room where they, they demanded an unconditional surrender, but eventually agreed to allow the emperor to carry on as head of state, which he did, of course. Hirohito carried on as Japanese head of state for, for decades afterwards. Um, so I would never play down the awfulness of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But when you look at some of the alternatives from the standpoint of overall human suffering, I think that there is a conclusion there that it wasn't the worst that could happen. And I say that with the most gritted of teeth. Yeah. Tim, Whatever I bring you on for for the next show, I can guarantee it will have to be cheerier because there simply can't be a worse option than this one today. Thank you so much for bringing the knowledge, as always. We know you can be counted on. We absolutely love having you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm off for a cup of tea. Hey, guys. It's Editing Giles here. This interview with Mr. Cloak was really enjoyable with incredible amounts of knowledge to the point where I had to be reminded that we're not actually a history podcast. So if you'd like to hear the full interview in all its granular detail, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash God in Film Podcast and sign up to our Bishop Waller Bridge tier to hear it along with additional interviews and special bonus episodes like our God in Music and God in Gaming episodes. And now, back to the show. So, Nat, that was Tim Cloak. What do you think? As always, I just feel so envious that I'm not one of his students because he sounds like he's he must be such a good uh, history teacher. He is one of those kind of smart people who makes you feel more intelligent just talking to him. I think that's a really special skill and I really love that about him. Now it's time for <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I've been practicing. I've been rehearsing all week. <laughs>
Awesome <laughs> sauce. So, as I said, I've only I had only fifty five minutes to process my thoughts on Oppenheimer after it finished before going into Barbie. Mm. Uh, a week later, I wrote an article about it for Premier Christianity, and that still hasn't quite been enough time. So. You and I are just going to chat through yeah. some of the moral quandaries, some of the yeah. existential dread provoked by this film. Mm-hmm. And my main thing I'm going to be looking at is how should a Christian respond to the moral questions posed in Oppenheimer? Mm. As I see it, that breaks down to two separate but interconnected questions. So firstly, should they have made the bomb and should they have used it? Mm-hmm. So to answer the first question, we've got to we've got to step back a bit. Oppenheimer is a film that is concerned with chain reactions, and if I was looking for like the first link in that chain, it would have to be the first successful attempt at splitting the atom in 1938. Mm. Did you know that it was a woman involved with that? Yes, I I think I'd heard that, and unfortunately, I think like most scientists in the first half of the 20th century, if you don't have a penis, you don't get a citation. Mm. Yeah, so it's Lisa Meitner, I think, had a lot to do with it, but she was denied constantly denied recognition because she was both a woman and a Jew. So, oh, um, it yeah, I mean, double. Threat. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a lot of people say Meitner should have been awarded the Nobel Prize along with her colleague mm. Dr. Otto Hahn. But from that moment, and they, they do it, they sort of get the point across beautifully in the in the film when the, the guy runs in, he sort of runs out of the barbershop holding the, the newspaper and shows them that it could be done. And it's when you know something can be done, mm. then it's all about making it happen. Does that make sense, mm. you know? Obviously, the other thing is splitting the atom always seemed a bit, a bit weird. So the way I understand it is the, the neutrons smash into the electrons or the electrons smash into the the neutrons and the neutrons then split up and then they create more neutrons split up smashing and it creates a huge amount of energy as all mm. these things are kind of pinging off in each other and just keep on pinging all, all over and over yeah. and it creates massive amounts of energy and this is effectively like the starter pistol in the race to harness this energy into a bomb mm. and hitler has access to some of the best theoretical physicists in the world there's uh, there's one bit do you remember early on he meets heisenberg mm. so i first heard about heisenberg from star trek yeah heisenberg's uncertainty principle i think yeah is something like if you can know the 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 mass of a, an atom you can't know the speed of it or you something. can know the movement or the low no, the speed or the location of particle, but not both at the same time. This it's is why I love you. You're, you're so much smarter than me. No, you know? I, because I've probably um, got that wrong. Weird stuff. I don't really understand it. I remember hearing about this because in Star Trek, there's the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is a real problem for their transporters. Mm. So one of the technical advisors on Star Trek just put, put in the Heisenberg compensators. That's you know? yeah. uh, Michael Okuda who, who came up with that. So at one point, a theoretical physicist rang him up and said, how do the Heisenberg compensators work? And he just responded with, very well, thank you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Love that. So what I found enjoyable was that Murphy's Oppenheim points out in the film that the only advantage they have is Hitler's prejudices will mm. prevent him from truly focusing on the work of these pre- of these physicists because of their Jewish origins. Yeah, and it always blows my mind that 
if maybe Hitler had been a little less racist and a little less <laughs> anti-Semitic, he might have actually won the war, which I find absolutely mental. Wow. You know? And as as obviously as Oppenheimer says in in the film, I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. If if Hitler would had had a bomb, I don't think he would have shown nearly as much restraint as the Americans did. Yeah, and I think it's one of the the things that like when we talk about oh you know should the Americans have done it and developed the bomb and and you know that started that chain reaction. But the fact is, I don't think they really had a choice because somebody Mm. else much worse than them was already doing it and it's like their hands were tied like what could they do just sit back and go well we're not we're going to take the moral high ground on this yeah that's the the problem like if you try if you're looking for where you stop the 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 chain reaction Mm. we have to go all the way back to the the first thing or we you know it's it's so it, it does feel like a domino effect. Well, if this, then that, and if this, and so on and so forth. Mm. If you want to see an idea of what it would have been like if Hitler had gotten the bomb first, I'd highly recommend checking out The Man in the High Castle. <gasps> Love uh, it. I think on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I've watched it all. It is, is really... such a good show. Yeah, it's a slow burn. It mm. takes a, it takes a while to get there, but it is, it's definitely worth it, you know? Yeah, such a good show. So, with all this in mind, I think it's easier to justify the decision to begin to develop the world's first nuclear weapon. Mm. You have to remember, Hitler also had uh, Werner von Braun, mm. Bra- Braun, Braun, who was the man who was developing the V5 rockets. So not only would Hitler have the bomb, he would mm. also have a delivery system that was like nothing else. Mm. So as I say, the decision to begin building this weapon seems a lot more justifiable to me. How it was used, on the other hand, is a much larger discussion. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps not surprising that many of the voices most vehemently opposed to the use of bomb came from the scientists that helped create it. They try all the other all the other possible options, the idea of a, a demonstration mm. for the Japanese, and Tim beautifully pointed out all the reasons why that wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have believed uh, video footage. It would have been impossible to to sort of get them to sort of come in, sit down, have a cup of tea, watch a massive bomb go off and then go, if you don't surrender, we're going to use this on on you. Because I was interested at one point about whether the the belief that the Japanese wouldn't surrender, how much of that was kind of just Americans needing to to feel like they're not responsible but mm. the more i looked into it the more i could uh, i saw that that was that was very much a thing like that you have to be completely loyal to the emperor and you absolutely can't surrender under under any circumstances you know mm. they they literally just wouldn't stop and counterfactualism is is basically the kind of the guesswork of uh, of historical mm. stuff isn't it mm. so regardless of what might have happened what did happen was that on the 6th of August, 1945, at 8.15am local time, Little Boy was dropped over the city of Hiroshima and 80,000 people killed either instantly or shortly afterwards. And in the four months that followed, between 90,000 and 166,000 people were killed the city of hiroshima estimates that 237,000 people were killed directly or indirectly by the bomb now numbers don't mean anything when put to you like this mm. be- it becomes so large that it stops meaning having any any kind of impact mm. so what i like to do when i think about these things is i think about what is the 
where is your hometown? Google the population of it and then start to measure it in that that sort of sense. So obviously I'm from Bangor originally. The population of Bangor is 16,358 people, but at least it was in 2011. And if you then start to multiply that in terms of how many people that uh, how how many how much sort of space that is that's the way i can able to get a sense of it do you know what i mean like i want to do this for my hometown now how many people did you say uh, was that so had the, died so 80,000 people were killed uh, almost instantly mm-hmm. so that's uh, kidderminster's a population uh, of 57,000 so that's like a, a kidderminster in a bit which is crazy. Again, I only th- seem to think in um, in Welsh terms. Hmm. So that's the entire population of, of Anglesey. Wow. All, uh, all wiped out, you know. And you have to think, you have to personalise it to yourself because otherwise it's just it's just numbers, you know. How so many say 250,000? 237,000 killed either directly or indirectly. So where I live right now in Trafford, which is sort of a borough, uh, of Manchester, that comes to two hundred thirty-six thousand. So you you imagine where you live, and you imagine every single person wiped out there, and so, how far you'd have to go before you saw another person. That's the best way to try and put this into a sense of scale. Another good way to envision um, these massive numbers is how long it would take you to count if you counted mm. one per, one death per second. Um, so I've just done a little bit of um, working out. So 237,000 seconds is 65.83 hours, which is, I'm just rounding up to 66 hours. So it would take you two and three quarter days to count if you counted one person per second. So that's, I always find that quite a good way to try and envision those massive numbers. And then obviously if that wasn't enough, they dropped a second bomb on the city of Nagasaki three Mm. days later. What I learned was that the, the Nagasaki bomb was actually more powerful, but yeah. the devastation wasn't quite as much because Nagasaki was in a valley, so it kind of holds some of that in, whereas Hiroshima was a wider kind of flat plain, so it spread yeah. for, for further. So Tim talked about the naval blockade. He talked about what a, a Japanese land invasion would have been like. Mm-hmm. And if we look at, at Okinawa, which is where they actually did do a land invasion, I think we, we covered some of that in our Hacksaw Ridge episode. Okinawa is sort of just, it's just under twice the size of Anglesey. And uh, for that, they lost 12,000 Americans, 100,000 Japanese, and somewhere like a nearly 100,000 native Okinawans, 1,700 schoolboys between 14 and 18 were put into frontline service. So this gives an, a, an idea of the extent Japanese forces were willing to go to fight off an invasion. And that is just for one tiny island. Mm. In essence here, we're, we're, we're brought back to the trolley problem. Mm. Nat, can you explain to people what the trolley problem is? Yeah, so the trolley problem is a, a really famous uh, thought experiment from the philosopher Philippa Foote. I'm sure 
probably most of the people listening to this have heard this or some version of it um essentially is imagine you have a train going down a track the train's a runaway train if you do nothing that train is going to hit and kill five people Mm -hmm. but there's a lever at the side of the track if you pull that lever the train gets diverted onto a, a separate track where the five people will be safe but there's one person on that track who will be uh, uh killed by your actions so the whole point of the trolley problem it's a thought experiment it's not meant to be like a, a trick where there's a secret answer where you get to save everyone uh it's all about testing the uh limits of our our ethics so most people agree that the trolley problem uh the the solution is it's ethical to pull the lever because you're going to save the five and even though it will kill one uh ultimately you end up saving more lives and there's loads and loads of different variations on it and i think it's often one that gets talked about with um the you know should the americans have dropped the bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki because the argument is you yes you killed you know over 200,000 Japanese but if the war had carried on then many many more people would have died but personally I feel that the trolley problem there's a limit to how far you can push that metaphor because Mm -hmm. In the original trolley problem, you can see the two outcomes. You know that if you do nothing, five people will die. But if you pull the lever, one person will die. But the difference is when it comes to the question of was it ethical to drop the bombs on Japan, you can see what happens if you do it but you don't know what's on that other track. We have lots of arguments and evidence like if we hadn't have dropped the bomb, then these are the outcomes. But ultimately we don't know 100% and the trolley problem kind of relies on there being absolutes. You're right we don't know 100% but we do know 90%. I think your argument here is one of degree rather than category. We have a really good idea what could have what could have happened there. It's like if you'll find your car driving straight into straight towards a tree you don't know exactly what would happen if you didn't slam on the brakes but we've got a pretty good idea i don't know i think i i don't think it's necessarily that clear cut but no i, I think we're just gonna have to agree yeah, to this i feel like we're going around in circles on this one a <laughs> yeah bit. fair enough the trolley problem the thought experiment essentially is summing up uh, a point from utilitarianism which mm-hmm. is an idea that comes up from uh jeremy bentham around the time of the enlightenment he comes up with this idea that utilitarianism is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong. It's not a bad measuring stick, obviously, to make moral judgments. But for Christians, it can present something of a challenge because it has no moral absolutes and any act can be justifiable under the right circumstances. Another thing about about Bentham's thing is, I think in one version he says the greatest happiness, but in other versions Mm. he says the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. And... Mm. This question is about whether whether somebody's the most pleasure for the most amount of people is worth intense pain for one person. Mm. Perhaps the most Christian spin on this concept came from 20th century thinker Joseph Fletcher. Have you heard of him? Oh, vaguely. Right, okay. So Fletcher believed people could break conventional moral rules in certain situations, provided it was for a loving motive. In sort of Christian apologetics, he was trying to find a middle ground between legalism, you know, doing doing what the law tells you because it's from a higher authority, and antinomianism, 
which is a doctrine according to which Christians are freed by grace from the necessity of obeying Mosaic law. He was trying to find mm-hmm. like a, a middle ground between those two points, you know, and his whole thing was only one thing is intrinsically good, namely love, nothing else at all. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that I've that I've heard echoed by uh, other things like Nick Page from the from the Mid Faith Crisis podcast. He said he he echoed a line where he said something like just love everybody, the rest is details. <laughs> and when you think about this, proponents of situation ethics uh, point to Matthew four where Jesus is berated by the Pharisees for allowing his followers to eat grain despite that being illegal on the Sabbath. So he replies, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Um, That's Matthew 12, verses 3 to 4. And that's uh, Mm. illustrated beautifully in season two of The Chosen, if you get a chance to see that. So Jesus points, Mm. Jesus is breaking a law. And when he's picked up on it, he said, okay, look. King David, the guy you lot all think is great, and I think is great. Everybody here thinks King David's great. He broke the law as well under extreme circumstances. Mm. And also, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, and that was considered to be doing work on the Sabbath and not resting. So Jesus is plainly flouting what these people would have seen as irrefutable laws. So all that said, it's still incredibly hard to think of dropping the bomb as an act of love, and this is one example that stretches situation ethics to breaking point. Are you aware of the distinction between act and rule utilitarianism? I had heard this distinction. I think yeah. act, act utilitarianism was the one I'd heard of. Do you want to break it down for us? Yeah, so basically, like, somebody described it as it's when STEM people try to do philosophy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the idea that you can you can basically make a mathematical equation mm-hmm. out of ethics. Um, and utilitarianism, it's often like you said you know it's greatest good for the greatest number the greatest happiness for the greatest number there's actually quite a lot more to it like like, that's like the headline it's all about uh, increasing the overall good in the world um and that is looking at like a long-term good is better than short-term good Mm -hmm. and good for many people better than good for one and stuff like that but um there is the problem that you do end up with like you said justifying unethical things Mm -hmm. because um uh, that's what will create the greatest good i don't know if i've ever done this um the version of the trolley problem which is it's instead of it being a a runaway train it's a doctor um and organ transplants yeah i mentioned this so essentially would it be okay to kill one healthy person harvest their organs and save the lives of five people most people would say no that is very, very wrong. But then when you say, however, you said you would pull the lever and mm-hmm. kill one person to say five, why is there a difference there? And that is where like utilitarian, act utilitarianism falls apart. Because act utilitarianism is taking each a situation on a case by case basis. Um, so um, you don't look at the, the kind of long term outcomes. Like in this particular case, yeah, killing one person, taking their organs and saving five would create more happiness. However, do we want to live in a world where people can just be randomly snatched off the street and have their organs harvested? Um, And so what you have is rule utilitarianism, which is we should um, follow rules 
which if everyone followed them followed them would then increase the overall happiness um i think when it comes to like uh, talking about whether it was ethical to drop the bombs on japan i think utilitarianism kind of a lot of the time when making decisions in utilitarianism you're looking at well what have i done in the past and what has worked obviously like in particularly with rule utilitarianism it's like well i know what the uh when this thing happened before it produced this amount of happiness mm-hmm. but obviously this was the first time this had ever been done and i i i, I think we come to a point where the philosophy only gets you so far yeah and I think to make these kind of decisions, you have to be deliberately stupid or you have to be deliberately blinkered. Truman Mm. found this decision easier to make because he decided to only count American lives on this Mm. point. There's the one bit, you remember in the film, where they are trying to make a decision about which city to go to and the Secretary of State says... Uh, let's rule out Kyoto. My my wife and I went there to that city on honeymoon. It was lovely. And it's a stupid reason. It's a daft reason, but there's only stupid Mm. decisions left to make by that point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a part of me, however much I want, would like to embrace utilitarianism, and I do that in in some, some aspects, there's a part of me that has that Kantian thing in the back of my head the idea that there being like absolute moral rights and a moral wrong. So whilst mm. I can recognize the utility and the reasons for dropping the bomb, I wouldn't have wanted to be the one to do it, you know? Mm. One thing I think that theists have on some level is that we, I expect to at some point stand before God and have to, justify my actions effectively you know Mm. and i'm not talking about like you know oh i sinned here i i made a mistake and i repented for it because god is fine with that god you know god's like okay fine but what about if it's something where you'd say yes i did that and i i would do it again in the same situation and that's Mm. sometimes in the past when i've been talking to phil about like legalism versus utilitarianism when presented in that in that sort of form it, we've tend to go for utilitarianism but i think before you even think of a philosophy you have to work out what your underlying principles are that will mm. help you make those decisions love doesn't seem to me like a bad one to start with but mm. joseph fletcher who comes up with situation ethics which is like a christian spin on act utilitarianism also was able to justify eugenics as far as he was concerned a person who had down syndrome had didn't have a life worth living at all but then again if you were asking people about whether they were pro-life or pro-choice most of the most of the sort of pro-choice people would come back to some form of utilitarianism that losing aborting the, this fetus will is the part of the greater good for the greatest number of people so mm. there is no easy way to shake this down you have to be deliberately stupid mm. so yeah. wherever you land on the necessity of dropping the bomb no one could have come out of this film thinking that any future use of a nuclear weapon could be a good thing. Do you know how many nuclear warheads Britain has? I'm going to have a guess at 30? 270. 
Oh my god. 270 nuclear weapons. And the only good news I could find about this was that that's actually quite low compared to what they used to have. Back in the (laughs) 70s, they had 540. So broadly speaking, the scale of uh, sort of denuclearization has gone down over time. I'll tell you what is quite terrifying is when you look at the scale of the weapons that we have these days compared to what uh, happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, that the Have you ever heard of the SAR bomb? It's something ridiculous, like 50,000 times Hiroshima mm. or something like that. Don't quote me on, on the exact numbers. The mushroom cloud that it created was basically up into like the upper atmosphere and uh that's the biggest bomb that's ever been detonated are you googling SAR bomb now no i'm actually um, going to something I, I go to when i think about this is called nuke map uh nuclearsecrecy.com mm. where you can pick a point on a map anywhere in the world oh yeah and you can choose which type of bomb so if you ever need a sense of the scale that's uh, mm. that's going on i think we can agree that oppenheimer is is Nolan's most overtly political film to date. And the, mm. the last scene where there's a conversation between Einstein and Oppenheimer, he says, about when we were talking about, was it, had we started a chain reaction that, destro- that could destroy the entire world? And he says, I believe we did. The best I can always think about that is like, I hope they're wrong. Mm. I think the campaign for nuclear disarmament could have like little stands next to in the cinema foyers as you come out <laughs> because I think this is possibly one of the best, best sort of adverts for it. Mm. Okay, that wraps up our episode, our Finding the Faith in the Film, that wraps up our episode. Now, have you had something within driving distance <laughs> of a good time? I have had a time. Time has, um. time has had fantastic okay listeners if you have been and if you've made it this far well done thank you so much and we'll see you next time bye Bye. Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff that's me mixing and editing by Giles our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee waffle editing by Julia Hall Film is a Dask production please rate and review Unless it's a one-star, in which case, assemble a team of the best writers in the country. Set up a base of operations somewhere remote. Remember, if they're not allowed to bring their families with them, you'll never get the finest minds to join you. Then, working day and night, craft a negative review that is so explosive, so scathing that we'll have to be treated for third-degree burns and radiation sickness. Good luck. <laughs>